Hey everyone and welcome to the Phileas Club, a show where we talk about world news with people actually from around the world. This is episode 86 for April 2017, Breaking the Cycle of Insanity. Hopefully. Hello everyone and welcome to the Phileas Club. My name is Patrick Beja and today we are going to have a regular episode. For those who don't know, the regular episodes are the ones where we gather people from different countries around the world, different cultures, different views on everything that's happening and we discuss the news from the past uh, month or so. So I am in France and uh, we'll certainly have a number of things to discuss from my country and uh, we also have... The I, I don't want to say return because you were here last episode, Turkey, but uh, not for the full show. So now it's kind no, of the return for the full show. Yeah. Uh, and to be honest, I can't wait to harass you over the, your French elections. Of course. It's going to be so much fun. You always do, you always have, quote unquote, fun with those things. Uh, you oh, sound yeah. You sound, uh, just to remind people, you are in Saudi Arabia, so thank you for joining us. And you sound even more asleep than you usually do. Is it because we're doing the show in the morning for a change? Well, yeah, kind of. <laughs> Come on, I just had breakfast and I'm talking to you. So you're digesting is what you're saying. And it's the weekend here. <laughs> true, true. The Fridays are the weekend in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, and plus I have a cat here that's annoying the hell out of me right now. Ah, well, that might wake you up a little bit, so I'm, I'm happy about that. Um, and as my wife is exiting the house, bye, honey. Bye. All right. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you heard that, but the door was being opened and, and closed. Uh, all right, so we, let's keep going around the very, very large world table uh, with who should I go to next? Let's go to the extreme, to the east, with Eric, who is in Vietnam currently. How are you doing, Eric? <laughs> Very, very warm here in Vietnam. 35 degrees today. Uh, centigrade, right? Centigrade, yes. yes. So that's over 100, <laughs> about 100 here. So well, uh, it is nice, hot, and sweaty. Yes. Oh, wow. Okay. That w might be a little bit too much detail for us, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that kind of podcast, guys. All right. Yes, it is. It, uh, it is kind of, it was around uh, 5 or 10 degrees here in Paris. So I'm like, I, I'm not in Finland. Why do I get Finland, Finnish temperatures? What's happening here? And of course, the answer is probably global warming. Let's start with a non-controversial topic to uh, start the show. No, let's That's go to... <laughs> what, Turkey? That's a myth. There's no such thing as global right, warming. Right, exactly. Of course. Everyone yes. knows this. It's, it's not happening. Like, do you know, are you better than Trump in knowing stuff like this? <laughs> Obviously not. Uh, hey, Matthias, how are you doing over there in Germany? Greetings from rainy, cold, and partially snowy Germany. Snowy? And unlike Turkey. Yeah, we actually have snow over here in some parts. We have about three or four degrees Celsius. So uh, we yeah. have snow this week. Well, it was snowing in, in Finland, my other home country, uh, like a week ago. It was actually snowing as well. So nothing surprises me anymore. Although that, you know, they often have snow in, in April and May. So that's not yeah, global. It's not that anything. uncommon, but still no yeah. one wants snow in April. <laughs> Who wants snow in April, honestly? No, uh, well, I would love ever. some snow in April. Can you would love some snow, snow anytime. 
you yeah. would love some snow any time of the year, yeah. I guess. But. Exactly. <laughs> um, Eric, you were going to say something? No, no, I'm good. Okay, all right. Well, you know what? I will still uh, give you the talking stick because uh, instead of starting by talking about the French election, which would mean I would never stop talking until, you know, the end of the weekend, um, I will uh, suggest that we discuss things that have been happening uh, in your part of the world and uh, most notably... Let's bring it back. You know, we don't have a uh, an American from the U.S. who currently lives in the U.S., although you are uh, an American citizen, Eric. Uh, I will do my best to kind of hold the, the flag. Yes, and, and scream USA, USA uh, nonstop whenever we talk about anything. Um, but yeah, we are going to discuss uh, what's happened between President Trump and uh, the North Koreans and the Chinese and that whole thing, not just to recount the events, uh, but also so that we can get a uh, an impression, a view of how maybe China saw the whole incident or maybe incidents. Um, can you, I mean, you're a journalist, so certainly you're going to yeah. do a better job at, at describing all of this than I would. Yeah, so there's a, a, a real profound sense of unease right now, uh, you know, in this part of Asia, in not just because of what's happening with Trump and with North Korea, but also because of what's still going on in the South China Sea and the islands. And will the Americans kind of stand up to the Chinese? And it doesn't look like they will, despite the tough talk that's been coming out of Rex Tillerson, the U.S. Secretary of State, to say that he is going to confront the Chinese. Now the Americans face a really difficult situation. Do they confront the Chinese in the South China Sea when, in fact, they need the Chinese to help them with North Korea? And one of the memes that you hear in the U.S. and the Western press, and this is certainly coming out of Trump himself, is that Trump keeps tweeting about if the Chinese don't do something, then the Americans will. And that's making the Chinese very, very, very nervous. And it got so much to the point that, you know, a couple days ago, Xi Jinping, the president of China, picks up the phone calls up Trump and says, listen, guy, you got to cool it down a little bit. Uh, and that was kind of a remarkable, remarkable place that we're in now where the Chinese president is telling the American president to, to chill, chill out a little bit. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, really, it's, it's, it's rather alarming because there is a sense that Trump really doesn't understand the stakes that he's dealing with. And in terms of what Twitter, North Korea... Like is uh, in general, or is the the are the tweets a specific focus uh, and and you know uh, fear for uh, people over there? Well, this is one of the big problems: is that when you're dealing with the American government right now, you don't know who you're dealing with. So on the one hand, you've got Twitter coming out with you know Donald Trump's tweets at two in the morning or whenever he does it, you know, saying these bombastic, very extravagant things. And on the other hand, Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, when he goes to Beijing, is much more accommodating. And and so people are very, very confused as to who is actually in charge of foreign policy, uh, and what part of the the you know the schizophrenic brain out of the U.S. government is speaking here. Is it this tough talk that they're going to do anything within you know to crush the North Koreans, or is it a more accommodating position with the Chinese to say we're going to work together on this? The problem is is that no matter how bombastic and how loud the Americans get. The fact is their options are extremely limited when it comes to North Korea. I mean, you cannot overstate how close Seoul is from the border of North Korea. North Korea could wipe Seoul from the map within 30 minutes. Tokyo is within range of their short-range missiles as well. And then the whole 
premise of North Korea imploding, because it doesn't really take very much to kind of, you know, this is a house of cards, and if you push it too far, North Korea kind of tumbles. South Korea is petrified over the thought that, that North Korea would crumble because they don't want to be stuck with the bill. China really doesn't want North Korea to stumble because that would bring American troops and the South Koreans right up to the border with China. So everybody is just trying to hold this thing together, and you've got somebody way across the Pacific who's screaming bloody hell, and that's making people here very, very nervous. So there is, of course, a uh, concern about how, what North Korea is doing, and that's, from the way I look at it, that's how you know, the reason why uh, the American administration and Trump specifically are getting nervous, well, not nervous, but are throwing around those threats. In, in It looks to me as, like North Korea is, of course, you know, threatening to do things and, and almost, you, you know, partly using this as a propaganda tool. And it's it doesn't seem like they're doing this more than they were before. And it's so, sort of posturing But the fact that, uh, you know, Trump is taking all of this, I don't know how seriously he's taking it, but responding to it in a way that could be interpreted as serious, it's sort of inflaming the situation. Is that the case or is actually, well, you know, it, it, is, it, is the no, situation is, worse than it has been before? The situation is definitely worse than it was okay. because if the intelligence is correct, they are potentially testing long range nuclear missiles that could reach the United States. The United States regards that as a fundamental threat to its national security, understandably so. So the question is, if the North Koreans, and they're about sometime now in the next couple weeks, uh, threatening to test another uh, nuclear uh, explosion. So the question is, what are the options available to U.S. policymakers? If the North, is it going to be tolerable for the North Koreans to possess long-range nuclear missiles that could hit the United States? So if they say yes, like they've done with Pakistan and, and India and other signatories to the non-proliferation agreement, Israel as well, um, do you just tolerate this and hope that, that Kim Jong-un doesn't actually pull the trigger? Or do you take some preemptive action? The problem is, is if you take any preemptive action, you are at risk of starting World War III. And when I mean World War III, we cannot overstate what this means. Because if the United States engages in military action, the North Koreans are going to fire back on the South Koreans, on the Japanese, and that would bring in the Chinese as well. And, and, and really, I mean, it sounds dramatic and it sounds, you know, catastrophic, and it is dramatic and catastrophic if this actually gets out of hand, which is why Xi Jinping was right to try and calm down the Americans. But the American generals are nervous, and they should be nervous, because defending, you know, the United States from what everybody agrees on is a complete lunatic of a leader Uh, that's, by the way, Kim Jong-un, not Donald Trump I was trying to refer to. Um, <laughs> It's nice that you have to, to, to specify is, which one you're talking about. Is a terrifying Let's thought. Let's just defend from both lunatics. Can we agree <laughs> on that? Right. And so, so we, we just, uh, you know, there's no good option here. Um, it's, if the United States sits back and waits and sees what happens, then potentially they end up in a scenario where Kim Jong-un has long-range nuclear missiles. That's a terrible, terrible option. If they engage militarily for a preemptive strike, you risk sparking World War III. That, too, is a terrible option. So you can see why I started at the top of the show saying people are apprehensive and nervous now about what's happening. Mm. Uh, and then the message sent by the Americans where the battle group, the USS Carl Vinson, is on its way to, the, you know, to, North, to Korea, 
and then it turns out it was actually heading south is not really inspiring an enormous amount of confidence out here. Well, you, know, you know, what is the United North States south. position? Yeah, I mean, you know, a few thousand <laughs> kilometers to, you know, m- makes a difference. Not that big a deal. Um, so it's the I, general gonna, direction. <laughs> I'm going to go to to the other uh, people on the panel as well. And uh, but for for me, clearly, the entire thing has been eclipsed by the presidential election, which is, of course, really important too. But before we go to the other ones, uh, I'm curious specifically about the. Reaction of and you're in Vietnam, so it's not like you have yeah. a, a, an exact, uh, you know, a complete knowledge of what's happening in China. But you're uh, very, very interested in China. You're a China uh, uh, specialist, I would say. Bo- blogger, podcaster. Yeah, I follow exactly. China very closely. So beyond the uh, the phone call from Xi Jinping to Trump saying, "Dude, can you chill for a second? What would you say is the reaction in China to this whole thing, you know, beyond that and the general panic and and dismay? The big mistake that Westerners make about China's relationship with North Korea is they assume that the Chinese have more leverage over the North Koreans than they actually do. Um, I did my master's thesis on China-North Korea relations, and it was the same 10 years ago as it is today when I wrote my master's thesis. The Chinese do have some influence. But remember what Chinese national security interests are, which is to prevent the implosion of North Korea. So Trump says, well, they provide all the energy. The Chinese provide the energy to North Korea and they can cut the energy. Yes, they could. But that would not serve Chinese interests in the long term. The Chinese also provide a significant amount of the food supply. They could cut that. That, too, would not actually serve Chinese interests. So we have fundamentally opposed interests from the Americans and the Chinese. The Chinese do have leverage, but when you take into account their interests and what their objectives here are, they don't actually have a lot of options. Because, again, their objective is to make sure that North Korea is at least in the status quo or stable and doesn't implode. And that's the big challenge facing Chinese policymakers. So they're nervous that the United States is going to tip that balance with some of this provocative talk. And just to be clear, there is no clear way out of this crisis. I mean, there's no way of thinking, you know, if we do this and this, then they do this. It's all like uh, 15 uh, steps ahead chess that no one is managing to see because the parameters are too complicated, right? There's... Yeah, I mean, we're talking about cities of populations of in the tens of millions that are within short missile range of the North Koreans. Yeah. I mean, that's the scale of what we're talking about. And you can imagine even if there's even a little bit of shooting that goes on, what impact on global markets that would have. Let's bear in mind that the world's second and third largest economies are all in this neighborhood. Mm. And, And imagine what that would do to global supply chains what that would do for investor confidence, trade and shipping. Half of all commercial and merchant trade goes through the South China Sea. So the, there is no regional conflict here. Whatever happens in this part of the world is devastating for the rest of the world, given the integration of the global economy. All right. So you're painting a pretty grim picture of the situation. It's now. scary. It's How- very scary. There's no doubt. Yeah, how how should we start buying canned food? Like for real? Uh, is this like a serious? Uh, uh, no, how, you probably you just. I don't think there's anything that we as individuals can do but hope and pray that that this just doesn't cycle out of control. 
I mean, I, I just, we are powerless in all of this. Uh, there is no fundraiser that will change this. There's no kumbaya kind of meeting that will change this. There, we are hoping no, for the sanity. Uh, Facebook of, update I can do or like there, update my, that's my right, picture. You know, or, and no, okay. Do it for North Korea. No, that doesn't work here. <laughs> this is really a state power thing. And we're hoping that the Chinese, North Koreans, South Koreans, Japanese and Americans can at least find a way to hold the status quo. So and the, the, the other thing we can pray for is that North Korean technology really isn't that stable. They did a missile launch last week. It, it completely flamed out. So the only hope we have is that their technology just isn't ready for prime time and that we buy ourselves a few more years. That's really the best that I think we can hope for. Right. And just so we, we understand, when we say there's nothing we can do, the only thing we can do is vote when we have the opportunity to vote because then they're in That's charge true. and they should be doing their job. And I, I don't know if we want to go there, but the warmongering thing with the fear that Clinton was going to be a warmonger, and we've seen that in the first hundred days for different reasons. I understand you can justify it by, you know, bombing children in Syria, I mean, gassing children in Syria, and the actual threat of thermonuclear uh, uh, missiles in North Korea. I understand those are all good reasons, but... Maybe we don't want to go there. Okay, I let's let's skip it. I've decided. Uh, Turkey, how is this being discussed in Saudi Arabia? It seems like relatively foreign uh, things, but as Eric has said, it's kind of everyone's problem. So I'm curious. Um, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, that's good. Um, well, it's being covered in Saudi, but it's not really the top news uh, topic here. So people are kind of nervous about it. They, uh, you have two different reactions depending on who you're talking to. You have the pro-North Korean people who see North Korea standing up to the Americans, and then you have the, Ameri the people who are supporting the American movement as they're seeing the North Korea as the enemy of uh, the people and society in the world with their <coughs> aggression. So, just a second. When you say the pro-North Koreans, that's actually, that startled me for a second. There are people who support the North Korean regime? It's, it's not the North Korean regime per se. It's just the fact that there's an Asian that's actually fighting back against the U.S., And actually okay. standing up against them. So, yeah. it's, uh, you know, you, you have some of those people out there who see North Korea as the country that's standing up against the U.S. who has been invading and influencing in, uh, every other country and their own ideology. So you really well, have those type of people out there. I guess I understand the standing up to the U.S. because that's a common sentiment throughout the world. And whether or not it's, you know, misguided or appropriate is a different uh, debate. But do these guys know what North Korea is? You know, it's kind of like, all right, I get it that you don't like the U.S., but, uh, you know, uh, out of all the of, countries in the world... People, most of these people think that what they hear about North Korea is American propaganda. Really? Okay. Well, it, it, it clearly shows that they don't know what they're talking about, and yeah. it's just propaganda <laughs> from their side. Because I think if you look at the U.S. position in this part of the world, the United States and in in, in the deployment of its military is the major reason why Asia has become the center of the economic universe in, in the world today. It's because these countries here, after World War II, didn't have to spend 
billions and billions of dollars on weapons because the United States kept the peace. So that allowed them to develop their economies. It kept the Chinese, Japanese, Koreans, Taiwanese. You know, World War II is not over here. That's that's a key kind of difference here. So when you hear that kind of rhetoric coming out of the Middle East, I think it's reactionary. It's just it's ill-informed. And well, it doesn't really understand the complexity of the situation out here where it's not as simple as good guy, bad guy. But especially, I mean, especially for North Korea specifically, if you talk about any other country in the world, there's kind of, you know, pros and cons. And you could even say that uh, in Syria, there's a, a, an argument to be made that Assad is preventing, you know, some rebel terror groups from taking hold in the in the in the region and there's uh, you know turkey he has an actual support uh russia he there is actual support for putin beyond, be, be, uh, in spite of what a lot of uh, westerners think or say North Korea is really a hard, a difficult case to make that, you know, they Well, have. no, it's, it's not that difficult. You're talking about people who are not living in the region. They have never been to North Korea. The only thing they hear about North Korea is from the media. They don't believe the media. These are the people who believe in rumors, who believe in conspiracy mm. theories. You have the same people in the U.S. You have the same people. Well, and, and, people and people who believe in North Korea, I'm, I guarantee you there's a lot of people who thinks the same way in South America about North Korea. It's, it's just you're so far away from that place that you mm. just establish this theory about what's going on instead of mm. believing what the media is telling you. That's yeah. how people live. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's a conspiracy theory. The entire thing is about conspiracy theories. But I mean, even, even yeah, I understand what you're saying and I understand the, the reasoning, however flawed behind it, but really it's like, About North Korea, it's really pushing it a step further, I feel, because it's, I don't know, it boggles my mind. And God knows that, you know, 2016 has boggled my mind already. It's, but it's really about, it's not even just misinformation or fake news or anything like that. It's like complete uninformation. Like the, North Korea, there is no debate about the nature of the regime and the, you know, the way things work in North Korea. There's no debate about this. So creating a debate seems like, even more than any, everywhere else, a tool to uh, strengthen the anti-American propaganda or anti-American sentiment, which, you know, uh, some people feel is justified. That's, that's, which that's what you say when you talk to people who dis yeah, disagree yeah. with you. They're going to say the complete opposite. And, yeah, again, post truth yeah. and i don't think you know there's a big a way of formulating this which i think is appropriate it's not about being neutral and being objective are two different things and i think over the course of the last 20 years we're sort of pushed neutrality so much that we've lost sight of what objectivity is and I think this is an important role for journalism. It's not about being neutral and everyone's right from a certain point of view, which I think is ironic because I always try in this show to present everyone's point of view. <laughs> But we don't necessarily say at the end of the day, well, everyone's right, right? It's not like everyone gets a cookie. It, you hear everyone's argument, but at the end, there might be some, uh, you know, In some cases, there's a big debate between a lot of people about objective truth. And some people say there is no objective truth, and I say there is objective truth. And obviously, you know, I'm right, so 
there you go. But <laughs> that's, that's an objective truth. Yeah, the, exactly. Thank you, Eric. But anyway, that, that's an, a, a different debate. Let's get back to uh, the crisis with North Korea and go to Matthias, who's being very uh, quiet and uh, gentle in the corner. How is Germany looking at this? If they even are, maybe they're obsessed by the French, French election because we're their neighbor and European partner. But um, the reason us. why I am so quiet is that... Uh, Everyone is reporting about North Korea and the whole situation, but not a lot of people actually care on in their daily lives because it's so far away, basically, that, yeah, well, this, there is this madman in North Korea and he's testing his uh, missiles and, and there is this madman in the White House and he's threatening to bomb them. And, yeah, well, it's kind of the same. You said it before, what can we do? We can do nothing. It's kind of the same like during the Cold War, just different players. The threat of nuclear annihilation, you know, but we're sitting there and we can do nothing, basically. So who cares? Yeah. But uh, other than that, uh, Eric, you said uh, the um, difference between what the State Department and Donald, uh, is saying and Donald Trump is tweeting. Isn't the problem that Donald Trump is usually tweeting while sitting in front of the TV watching Fox and Friends or whatever? And it's just tweeting <laughs> yeah. whatever he's saying at that moment? Uh, uh, You know, the analysis that I've read, which I think is probably the most accurate, is that he, he tweets or he responds to the last person who's spoken to him. So he was very persuaded when he met with Xi Jinping eating his chocolate cake and Xi Jinping is telling him in 10 minutes the history of Korea, which was completely bogus. And then he starts tweeting about that. He's sitting in front of Fox and Friends and he sees something about Sweden and he decides, that well, that's the fact that he's going to go and tweet about, which is amazing for a man who sits atop the largest intelligence service in the world, that that's where he's getting his information from. Nonetheless, um, we really don't know his thinking process. No one really seems to know his thinking process. What we do know, though, is that it's not consistent with U.S. policy that's coming out the same day sometimes from the, his administration. Is he getting rid of NAFTA? Is he going to keep NAFTA? We don't know. Is he going to be supportive of the talks with North Korea or is he not? We don't know. So it really keeps everybody guessing. And I think that's what makes it different than the Cold War, is that in the Cold War, there was a pres presumption of rationalism. There was a presumption of mutually assured destruction that if you launch your nuclear missiles first and I then launch, we're both going to die. We don't seem to have that rationality in the debate, both coming from the Twitter feed of the president and from Kim Jong-un himself, who seemed to benefit politically from, you know, saying more provocative things, more extreme things. Both of them are playing to their constituencies. And that's what I think is so terrifying. Mm. I agree. It's not the same as the Cold War. It's just uh, the feeling that the, that feeling of helplessness, you know, because yeah. Patrick was asking, what can we do mm. as, uh, on the sidelines? That's yeah, what I mean. There's nothing. Yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. I think you're right. Mm. All right. Well, again, we could talk about this for a very long time. And I will add the uh, the just for the sake of argument, I will say that, yes, there is a possibility that Trump actually knows what he's doing and is using his Twitter uh, voice as a way of playing some kind of weird political and strategic game um, with his his partners and adversaries on the global stage. Yes, there's a chance that that's happening, but I'm just acknowledging it. I don't. I really don't think that's the case. But a statistic possibility, but it's so minor. No one yeah. is actually believing it. Yeah. But anyway, all right, let's let's move on. Um, I think to let's go to the French election, actually, because there is some uh, 
concern and some uh how can i say it some some relation actually to the concerns of the on the global stage because of course one of the key uh uh discussions in the French election is whether or not the country should stay in the EU. And if it it ends up leaving, uh, how that takes place. And it was a key discussion point during the first round of the election. And as I'm sure most people listening know, we're now in the runoff, the second round. And um, in the first round, what happened was completely mind-blowing and, and, you know, even unexpected from a few months ago, what happened was that basically the two uh, uh, traditional main parties were ousted from the election. And that would be the Parti Socialiste, so the the left-wing party, and Les Républicains, which is the right-wing party. It's really the equivalent, if you, you know, in the context of uh, France, it's the equivalent of the Democrats and the Republicans in the U.S. And imagine an election, and of course you don't have a two-rounds election in the U.S. Um, because reasons, and you're weird, but in a, in a normal country, we do have those which are much more conducive to uh, a demo- democratic choice. Yes, I understand how controversial what I'm saying is, but still. Um, and imagine that in that election, the Democrats and the Republican were not in the second round. Like, just, they they aren't there. Complete obliteration of the political landscape. Uh, The Republicans ended up making 20% in the first round, which is significant, but wasn't enough to to bring them to the second round. But the Socialists did 6%. 6%! That is... Like at five percent, your uh, your your budget for uh, the election uh, uh, marketing and advertising is not reimbursed. It's the limit where you're not considered like almost a real party, kind of. Um, and what happened on the on the right, as we've discussed before, it was a scandal from the um, the Republican candidate uh, having employed his wife in various government jobs where he was getting the money, but not, uh, but his wife wasn't actually working. So fake job. And that was, that completely sunk him. He was, it was an unlosable election for, for his party. And that poisoned the water for him. And he ended up losing some of the, the people who voted for him thought that this was kind of a conspiracy by the sitting uh, president on the left wing and the the judges who not didn't manufacture the whole thing, but really they dug into him and not into the others. Like there's a whole conspiracy theory thing happening here. But a lot of people uh, ended up not wanting to vote for him because they didn't want to vote for someone who got his you know hand uh, in the cookie jar, uh, caught with his hand in the cookie jar. And there's a hope that this will uh, teach a lesson to politicians in the future. Um, so that was that was one side of it, and it really there's no question that that lost him the election. On the other side, uh, what happened was that the the socialist party had a primary and and chose for the primary the guy on the left of the party. So really saying we don't want a center left uh, candidate, we want a left like a real 
socialist that will have socialist pol- policies. Again for, again, for the American audience, remember that socialism is not communism, and especially not in the context of our capitalistic uh, uh, democracies. Yeah, but, I keep on claiming that. <laughs> it's true, though. Uh, but still, I mean, he was on the left of the party, and that was very much, uh, uh, you know, a message that the base sent to the party. And then you had a guy who was part of the party for a long time who had exited the party because he wanted a, an even more left-focused uh, policy, the Jean-Luc Mélenchon, and he sort of siphoned the entire electorate of the Socialist Party because people w- wanted to send a message saying, we want like very much to the left um, policies. And he is, uh, you know, he doesn't, he, I, I, I could talk about. So what I'm going to do, hopefully, is that I'm going to do a special on the French elections with people uh, who can tell you about the political spectrum uh, and how they see the uh, the different parties and the different views. So hopefully you will have a better understanding of all of this. I'm hoping to do this between the two turns sometime next week. We'll see if it happens. Um, but so I'm not going to go into Jean-Luc Mélenchon because it's very complex, but suffice to say that he's on the left of our socialist party, which is despite what French people want to believe, the French socialist party is very much to the left of the political spectrum in Europe and in the world. Well, let's say in the Western world. Uh, you will be hard-pressed finding a, a party that is more to the left, except maybe in, uh, in, Sp- in Spain, Portugal, or Greece, and even that is debatable. So we end up with uh, Marine Le Pen, who is on the second round, and Emmanuel Macron, who is a social democrat, again, for my French listeners, I don't make the rules. He is a social democrat. That's what he is, and that's what his his policies are. When you look at the Western, um, the 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 Western political climate, um, so he is center center left in the 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 political spectrum a little bit. He's calling to the right to also be a part of his action, and I think a lot of people are want to to him to be how can i put it it's basically ending the uh the reason why a lot of people voting for him voted for him i believe is that people want to end the madness and i define the madness the insanity by people inflaming every single issue they discuss. It's true on the far left, it's true on the far right, and it's even true on in the traditional parties. And Macron is the only one saying, we need to work together. I don't care if an idea is from the left or from the right. If it's a good idea, I will uh, try and implement it. And the people on the left are looking at this and thinking, you are a crazy capitalistic uh, a-hole, and I will never vote for you. And the people on the right are, you are uh, the, um, the, uh, the, ah, how do you say it? Inherit, you're inheriting uh, the socialist government's uh, uh, policies, which you were a part of. He was minister of the economy there for a couple of years. He left because he felt he couldn't do what he wanted. Uh, and so you are a socialist and I will never vote for you. And so there is a partisan uh, uh, understanding of the whole thing on both sides and a, a significant middle that's saying you guys are all crazy. We need to be reasoned and to calm the F down 
And so Macron is the one that can help us do that. And again, on the far right is Marine Le Pen. So this is a very lengthy description. I'm sorry for taking so much time, but it's a complex situation. Um, Eric, you lived in France for a long time. You still, do yes. you still think that uh, Marine Le Pen can get, I mean, a lot of people agree she can get it. And the danger is the, the uh, people not going to vote, abstaining from the Jean-Luc Mélenchon side. That, that would give the victory to Marine Le Pen. But what do you think? So how do you define a victory for her? Because a victory for her can come, obviously, whether she becomes president, and that's a huge victory. There's no doubt. But she doesn't necessarily have to win the presidency to win the battle. If she can get a massive showing and a high turnout from a very mobilized you know, constituency, She has enormous power to affect the agenda of Macron going into his administration for a long time. So in some ways, it's a little bit like Trump, who never really thought he was going to win. And in some ways, I think Trump would have been better off if he hadn't won because he could sit on the outside, pissing into the tent from the inside. Uh, you know, you're now stuck with Le Pen as a permanent fixture, at least for the next five to 10 years, as an influence on your politics. There's no doubt about it. So I, I don't necessarily know if she has to win the election to win, to win, to have enormous influence of what's going to happen. You and I talked well, on your last show mm. a couple months ago, and I proclaimed that I think she is going to win. Um, and, and, and to me, that's as terrifying as a nuclear war in North Korea, because it really does represent the end of the European Union. This will dissolve the entire European Union if France withdraws itself from the euro and the EU. And I don't, Europe can't recover from that. Um, and, and just to, I, I just to, I don't see anything happening from that. Yeah, just to uh, add to what you were saying earlier, this is really becoming a referendum on the EU. Um, and the problem is Jean-Luc Mélenchon's party was kind of saying we should probably reconsider the, e the EU. And there's a whole debate happening there between plan A and plan B. But basically, they were saying we don't like the EU as it is now. Either we change it or we leave it. And what um, Le Pen is saying is we want to leave the EU and Macron is very much a pro-EU uh, candidate. So, but my question really was, do you think she will win the presidency? There's no doubt she has a lot of power, even if she doesn't. She's probably going to be doing between 30 and 40% at a minimum. But uh, do you think she can get the presidency? I'm starting to think that she might not win the presidency, but I think it's going to be a lot closer than what a lot of people think. Um, yeah. I thought a couple months ago she was going to win. I, I don't, I'm not quite as confident anymore uh, because I think enough of French society is sufficiently terrified that they will vote against her. I mean, the, the vote utile is going to be a very powerful message, whether it's a useful vote or a non-useful vote. Turnout's going to be super important. What I guess surprises me the most about what's happened in France in the past few months is how so many young people now are turning to Le Pen. And I think this represents the failure of the European system and it's certainly a failure of, French, of the French system that you have been able to tolerate 25, 30% French youth unemployment for so long. And now people feel like burn the house down because it doesn't matter. And that was the attitude that happened in Brexit. It certainly would happen in the United States where people feel disconnected from the system. So you know what? Tear it down. And, I don't and you know what? what the, the, actually, the, uh, the the youth is very much well to to an extent uh, with Le Pen, and uh, the urban youth is incredibly with Mélenchon, and they are, and and they. Uh, I'm very uh, wary of the way I say things because I've had endless discussions with um, 
with Mélenchon voters in the past few weeks, and they are they disagree with my characterization of it, but the way they are so far to the left that to them, Macron and Le Pen are basically the same, or not the same. It's They're not the same, but they don't care whether either wins because they... Again, maybe that's not the best way of putting it. They can't bring themselves to vote for Macron because they hate capitalism so much. I think that's a fair way of saying it. And we might have more details in the future. But they're so far to the left that Macron represents an extreme they can't bring themselves to vote for, even if it means uh, keeping Le Pen away from the presidency. And that kind of thinking, I think is, again, I'll say it again, extreme in my view, but also reminds me a little bit of the attitude of uh, the Bernie Sanders crowd who decided, F everyone, I'm not going to go vote. Clinton stole our election. Trump is a mad person, but I don't care. And they brought the... Um, the, the abstention so high that they ended up getting uh, the, 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 the presidency to Trump. I, at least it was a factor in it. And there's a real danger of the Mélenchon people not going to vote and saying, you know, I don't have any lessons to receive from you and getting sort of conf confrontational in those discussions. Um, and, and I think there's a danger that by them not going to vote, saying we can't vote for Macron because he represents the capitalism that is the cancer of our, of our society, uh, they, they might help. Uh, they're certainly going to help uh, Le Pen. But, uh, but aside from that, everyone else has called to vote for Macron to oppose uh, Le Pen in a way that was the case uh, in 2002, when Le Pen was his uh, father, her father, uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen, was in the second, in the runoff. Uh, but back then, he ended up making 15%, I think. And now she's probably going to be making, as I, as I said, at a minimum, 30 to 40%. And the argument of the Mélenchon people is, see, that's why the, the, the kinds of politics we've had for the last 20, 30 years are not solving the issue, they're making things worse. So that's the argument for not voting for Macron. Um, again, lots of explanations, I apologize. Um, Matthias, looking at it from just across the non-existing Schengen uh, frontier, what do you make of all of this? Well, see, unlike North Korea, this is hitting close to home, literally. So, <laughs> naturally, the French election have been a widely covered topic in Germany, especially with the looming threat of Marie Le Pen becoming the next president. And a lot of people actually expected her to be the one of the two candidates winning the first round. So, it wasn't that surprising for her to get into the second round. But uh, most media were focusing on Emmanuel Macron because the media oh. coverage quickly turned so into... Sorry, just interrupting again. Just to make things clear, everyone knew that she was going to be on the second turn. That was the, the thing that everyone was certain about. The, the question was only ever who is also going to be there. And the surprise that Macron is there is that, you know, it's not someone else. But everyone knew she was going to be there. So she is a fixture of the political scene here. 
Sorry. Yeah, so it wasn't really surprising yeah. over here as well. So, uh, But uh, the media coverage quickly focused on Emmanuel Macron because, uh, and it was kind of a meta discussion over here because now everyone is talking about how French just made their party system obsolete because an independent candidate won. But uh, right after the election, the media were not really talking about what Macron's agenda is, but everyone was talking about the age difference between him and his wife. That's kind of like <laughs> what the hell moment. I mean, it's kind of the same as when Theresa May became prime minister and everyone was talking about her sense of fashion and what shoes she's wearing. Like, seriously, where a politician is winning an election and we're talking about his or her personal life rather than her agenda. I mean, yeah. but it's the media for you. Um, and besides that, everyone is now focusing on the second round. And again, in line with the meta theme, everyone is writing about how people being confident that Macron might win against Le Pen, that this might be might actually cost him the presidency because everybody, please don't talk about how he will surely win because then he will lose. I guess they've been burned by the Brexit and the US election, so everyone is very cautious. And uh, besides, there are a lot of comparisons between Le Pen and Trump because she, uh, her friends' first rhetoric, her presenting herself as the woman of the people, the one against the establishment and the rich candidate, Macron. So there is a lot of comparison over here. And everyone, of course, is hoping that he'll win and Le Pen will not win. But uh, apart from that, even if Macron is winning, I guess the German government isn't that fond of him either because his plans for the EU are quite different from what the German government is actually planning and doing right now. So uh, he is probably not the candidate of choice, you, you could say, but uh, it's better than Le Pen. Every day. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, Le Pen, for people who don't know who she is, she's not Trump, she's not Farage. Uh, she's Her father was that. She cleaned up the party immensely. Uh, she's not a raving, you know, weird person. You can't know what she's going to say next time. She's very, not, you know, she's really a great communicator. She's a great politician. Um, she stayed away from many controversial topics I mean, controversial in the sense that everyone goes, what the hell is happening? What she is, she, she's in line with the nationalistic, uh, borderline xenophobic rhetoric. And I don't know if I need to use the word borderline there. Um, so that's her, her, uh, but, yeah, but she, she Patrick, makes a lot of you, sense. She, she's, Patrick, I'm going to disagree with you. You're okay. normalizing her behavior. This is a woman who a week before the election denied France's involvement in the Holocaust. I mean, the, her her cleaning up is paper thin of what she's been able to, you know, yes, she's not her father and she's not an overt uh, psychopath. But to suggest that she is, you know, normal in any way when she's denying France's involvement in, 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 in what they did to the to the country's Jewish population, when she talks about, uh, you know, immigrants and Muslims in animalistic terms, that's normalizing you know, horrific, horrific behavior. Well, and I think that we've all gotten accustomed to because she's very smooth politically that we now accept it for what it is. But I think we need to look very carefully at what she's saying. So I would say two things here. First of all, I kind of agree with you. Uh, I I'm talking about the fact that she's a great... Uh, uh, she's presenting a presentable face as opposed to her father or Trump or Farage. Right, she's not that extravagant uh, uh, WTF kind of person. 
I will also say that in an effort to try and understand what extremes say and represent, when she say when you're saying she denied the the involvement of the French, uh, uh, you know, of the country in the holo- the Holocaust, she didn't say. France did nothing wrong, quite exactly. What she no. said was the Vichy but government didn't. didn't represent France, which was represented by the General de Gaulle in London, right? So shes it's a cop-out. I'm not saying it isn't. Those, are, it's not like dog she's saying, whistles. Those are dog whistles yes, for I the agree. far right. I completely I mean, agree. You know, completely agree. yeah. But, but I just, just think it's dangerous to, to, to normalize her and to say that she is somehow kind of becoming more mainstream when in fact she shouldn't be seen that way many by many people's kind of characterizations. Well, it, when you compare him her to people like Trump or Farage or that kind of extravagant far right, I think it's important to explain what she is and and what kind of person the the French people are voting for. They're voting for a far right uh extreme xenophobic party. But they're not voting for the crazy clown-like, doesn't make sense, you know, says one thing, then says another thing, then tweets something crazy uh, kind of person. I'm just trying so to... No, but her methods are kind of the same, dangerous? aren't they? So, isn't that more dangerous, Patrick? I isn't don't that more know. Dangerous? At least you know that person is crazy. You have something against him. You fight that craziness. But when you start normalizing an individual who has these ideas and ideologies, isn't that more dangerous than a crazy person who you know is crazy, who is out there and everybody knows for a fact what he's thinking? Well, it didn't help in the case of Brexit and, and Trump. And I, I, will, I, I don't know whether or not it's more dangerous. I'm just trying to give you a picture of who she is. And, and because, again, a lot of people don't follow French politics closely and they don't know. They might imagine, you know, she's Trump-like and she's not. She simply isn't. So, Oh, but it's simple as this. And, and yeah. you complicated the entire elections because here as simple as you have two people now running one is a far-right, nationalistic, anti-immigrant individual, and the other one is just a normal politician. That's how people um, are seeing it here. Yeah, you're, you're saying that's... You're describing the view from Saudi Arabia? Yes. Hmm. It's, it's as simple as that. People are not complicating the whole situation. They're seeing it at this way, and that's it. That's, that's what they're looking. Because at the end of the day, here in Saudi, people don't care that much about the politics of France, because France is France, Saudi is Saudi, it's not going to affect them directly. However, they do care what kind of person is going to run the country in general. If they're seeing a nationalistic right-wing anti-immigrant, then that's someone they don't want to see running a country anyway, because that really hurts them in, in directly or indirectly. But if they see just a normal politician, then it's just normal politician running, and, and it's just the same old relationships between the Is it, isn't it just because she's anti, arguably uh, anti-Muslim? So it's, it's the same thing. Is she's anti-immigrant in general? Does well, the, she the, is. Distinguish between Muslims and non-Muslims. She, well, of course, Muslim there's the whole. Immigrants. There's the old, there the there's the whole anti-Muslim terrorism rhetoric that's very present. And by the way, 
we did have a, a, a terrorism attack, very minor, uh, but still yeah. there was a, a couple of uh, police the, officers the, that died. Um, not being, and that's, being nationalistic and being nationalistic right now, internationally, for some reason, has become also anti-Muslim. It's uh, find me one one anti one nationalist who's not anti-Muslim. In, no, of anywhere course, in the of world. course. That's uh, you know the terrorists did their job really well. They made so. everyone you know <laughs> get into those kinds of uh, mindsets. Um, but yeah, uh, okay. Anyway, um, I understand that this is how they view it in Saudi Arabia. What I'm saying is that kind of you know clear. I don't know what the solution is because when you're being clear cut and you're saying well far-right, you know, crazy, nationalistic, uh, it's the same, you know, Trump, Brexit, all of those far-right parties are the same, then you don't understand why people can even vote for them, right? So I'm, I think it's, no, there's no, a no, difference no, between no, no. normalizing. I, I, clearly, I clearly understand why people vote for them. People vote for them because we, people, us, me and you and the people on board in this podcast, we live in a bubble. We live in big cities. We live within a specific society that thinks a specific way. We don't interact with urban culture. We don't er interact with the urban people. We don't see what oh, they're thinking. You mean thinking, the, what the countryside people? Yeah, the countryside. We don't interact with them. We don't know what they want. We don't know what they see. We don't know what they think. We, th we just assume everybody is thinking just like us. We think everybody's problems are the problems we're having. What, right, but uh, when you're saying and, when you're saying and we're ignoring those people. But when you're saying Le Pen is them. when you're saying Le Pen is just a far right, you know, xenophobic, nationalistic person, the, the implication, and you're doing that too, Eric. The implication is kind of how could you ever vote for someone like this? No, I, I, no, no. I'm, to I'm totally up. I'm with Turkey on this one. That I understand exactly why people are voting for them because the systems have failed so many people. Right, but and, and we really, all agree on this. You know, that's the lessons from 2016, but, but right? But that's but that is exactly the disillusionment that so many people have with the corruption that pervades, you know, French politics, and this is the same in American politics as well. Is absolutely understandable why people, I, you know, are voting this way. I don't agree that it's going to provide the solutions that they want, but I understand their motivation. But when you're saying, ah, oh, but we're normalizing the Front National. Isn't the implication, and maybe I'm, I'm misunderstanding this, but isn't the implication that we shouldn't normalize it and that we should denounce it and then in the process kind of alienate all of the people that are voting for her, further expanding the divide and the you know separation between them and us and the fact that we don't understand them really? I, I don't see our role and my role as a journalist to denounce it. I see we should call it for what it is and describe it for what it is and to describe what, you know, and I think the, I think the news media in places like France and the United States are too closely aligned with the establishment. So they don't necessarily provide uh, to me the, the nuance that is necessary for people to understand. You know, what's funny is that you're looking in the United States right now and cattle farmers are very discouraged by the fact that, you know, Asian markets now are not as open to them as they expected because TPP is not coming. They didn't understand the consequences of shutting down TPP. And I think this is the key problem here is that people are operating on very, very low levels of information, if not false information. And that's really creating part of the problem here. 
But isn't didn't the information get discussed? It felt like mm. the, the the TPP, for example, since you're talking about this, TPP was being denounced, you know, as all uh, trade agreements as disastrous by Trump. And some people were agreeing, but some people were saying, no, we need trade agreements. And it's not like the information wasn't available. What, I don't was know, that, you what's, know. What's, Patrick, was that information been handed down to those people in the countryside by a politician that explained to them exactly what benefits they're getting? Or is it just public media? The media that the people don't believe anymore, they think it's part yeah, of the establishment that is spreading the lies. And that's the biggest uh, fall for the Democrats in the U.S. The reason they lost, the number one reason is they ignored too many places. They ignored too many people to go there, to talk to them, to explain to them, to discuss matters with them. That's how they lost. They ignored too many people. They thought, okay, this is the, where we need to talk with these people. That's enough. And everybody's just going to fall in. They ignored so, too many people. And mm-hmm. when we're saying normalizing, when you're uh, the, the parties in France, the right-wing party, we're not saying that we should not understand what they're doing. We, we should not normalize. We should let people know what they are. But at the same time, people should start to understand why are people voting for them. Find the reason. Not everybody who's voting for her is an anti-Muslim. Not everybody who's voting for her oh, is an anti-Muslim. Same as with Trump. And, Not, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. They have their issues. If we need be, these politicians who have lost touch with the people who live outside the cities, with the majority of the population, they completely lost touch with them, they need to start listening to these people, try to find out what is their problems, what do they need, what, why are they so angry? And, and the interesting thing, fighting. the interesting thing there is that that is exactly what Mélenchon is doing. He's he's seeing a lot of success with uh, the the urban youth. So I don't know how much it translates to the the countryside, but he's doing basically he's saying the reason for all of this is the excesses of capitalism. And we've had the same back and forth between left and right who are essentially doing variations on the same theme um, for the last 30 years. And that's why you're having these problems. So we need to get back to a much more uh, uh, socialist agenda that will help the, um, the, the classes that have been left behind by globalization and by capitalism. And I think there are a few... Uh, you know, a, a few exaggerations in there. But there's also, as for everything, a few things that are interesting in his entire uh, program. But uh, I'm sure there's exaggerations because it's not about going back, leaving capitalism, going back to more socialism. It's not the opposite. You need a balance of two. Yeah, well, he's definitely not both. going to the balance, yeah. I would say. But uh, all right. Uh, probably we should move on. Um, uh, Patrick, yes, could you please. allow me... Yes, Two yes, questions. yes, please, you, again, go ahead. Okay, uh, because uh, one of the things we actually discussed earlier this week, but I just wanted to put it up again, uh, what was the influence of the fact that the elections were held during a continued state of emergency in France? So did that, ha- or what effects were there on that? And the other one, since uh, we have also upcoming elections in the fall, and something that is discussed over here a lot is the fear of outside involvement, especially from Russia. Was there anything discussed about that or or the social media influence now that uh, Le Pen is in the second round and that uh, someone is targeting Macron 
uh, online? Um, so I would say it, we're still a week away from the election, so I don't know how it will shake up until then. But the state of emergency thing has had very little bearing on the conversations. And as I said on Twitter, I'm very much against the state of emergency. And I think it's ludicrous that it's it hasn't been lifted in over a year. Um, but it's really hard to argue against it when we've had, what, three incidents minor incidents but still incidents over over the past year where you know the police managed to uh to put a stop to the incident the one person with you know a knife or a gun and uh, they managed to stop them very quickly um thanks to the increased police presence it could be argued that, you know, we could keep the increased police presence without having the state of emergency, sure. Uh, but on the other hand, I also think that it doesn't influence things in a, too much of a negative way because people don't go crazy when these things happen. It was one of the fears, but people don't go to the extreme of, oh my God, again, you know, terrorism, horror, we need to change our whole life to make sure that this never happens again when we all know it, we can't, you know, actually make it a risk-free thing. We're being very surprisingly reasonable uh, when we deal with these things. It's like, okay, you know, someone went nuts and got a gun and shot a few people. It's horrible, but we're not going to let this turn us into fearful beings that make the wrong decisions because of it. So there are two sides to this discussion. Um, and the other thing is the intervention of outside forces, potentially Russia, in the debate, so far, I don't think have taken hold. Um, there have been some, I don't know if it's Russian sponsored, but there have been some discussions, you know, some uh, posters and some uh, memes being spread here and there. They're being denounced uh, relatively quickly. Maybe it's because we, we're expecting it from, uh, you know, of course, the, the elections in 20 and the decisions in 2016. So we're expecting it. And I don't think they're convincing anyone beyond the people that wouldn't be, you know, that wouldn't see reason anyway. There's always a base in every party that, you know, whatever, how many percentage, how much percentage uh, that will revel in that kind of thing. And of course, those people, I'm sure, are sharing it. But I think, again, we're being relatively reasonable in dealing with those and understanding what they mean and what they are. So overall, it's for all of the horror and worry for this election, I think so far, it's we're being surprisingly reasonable. Let's see what happens in, a, in you know, in a little bit over a week with the second the runoff. But um I don't know. I my hope is that we'll break that that you know cycle of insanity that's taken hold of the world. And and my hope is that it's an actual break that will help because we're we're saying we want to be reasonable and not just a delay by a few however many years. But that we won't know. All right, let's move on. Um, let's move on to who wants to go, Turkey or Matthias? No answer. Uh, I'll go. I'll go ahead. Uh, okay, go ahead. Well, 
biggest news here in Saudi. Let's see. Uh, last week, uh, do you remember about six months ago when I said that the government has decided out of the blue to cancel all the financial benefits to government employees? I remember very well. And that was kind of a crazy, <laughs> crazy thing. They're all back. Oh, well, all right. There you go. Out how how did that happen? A royal decree just came out. Uh, I think it was on uh, just a few days ago. I don't remember. And it just said, all benefits are back. Just like that. Nothing. But was the... What? what was, was there a, a lot of protest or... A lot of complaining. Of course, there's no lot of protest. There's no protesting. is illegal here. Yeah, well, okay. A lot of complaining, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Out of the blue, there was a royal decree last week, so all the benefits are back. That's the big Nothing to see here. Nothing happened. Exactly. 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 That's exactly what happened. But Out wasn't the, the, blue, the reasoning for taking it away, wasn't it kind of reason? Yeah, they said, they said that... Uh, financial reasons we need to save money now the reasoning they're giving oh the oil price has increased from 25 to 50 now things are better we're giving it all back okay yeah uh, so, so is it is it a good thing well it really comes down to how you look at it <laughs> <laughs> it's good and bad it's a complicated situation uh, i think personally i think the way it was done is completely uh, bad the way it was taken away, the way it's coming back, just like that. Taken away completely, back completely. There's no details, there's no system, nothing. That's the bad part. The good thing is it. Uh, a lot of people were hurting from the uh, problem of the uh, cutting all of those benefits because it cut salaries, because these benefits were looked at as part of your salary your monthly salary so you can imagine some people's salary have decreased by up to the worst case people have had their salaries cut 40 percent yeah yeah we you were yeah. saying this uh yeah. the other time yeah. the, the other time yeah. and it was yeah. kind of horrifying, and the average right? yeah and the average was about 15 percent that their salaries were cut an mm. average so they were living a specific lifestyle. Suddenly, their income has decreased dramatically. So now they're going back to their older lifestyle. That's, mm. So there's benefits and uh, negatives. The other benefit is, of course, it's good for the consumer economy. More right. money means more spending. Could that be also part of the reason why uh, the government that decided could, to... Yes, that, definitely that could be part of the reason. There has been a slowdown in uh, consumer spending ever since those cuts happened. So that could be another reason that they have uh, started to put them back. Uh, another reason is I think they figured that whatever they're going to save from their cuts, they might regain, uh, if they put uh, from the benefits, whatever they're going to lose from the benefits, they hopefully hope to regain as soon as they're going to implement the VAT value-added tax, which is supposed to be implemented starting the 1st of January 2018. Hey, wasn't VAT a French invention? I think it might I, have been. I, it was a European invention. I'm not exactly sure which country. I think it was a French invention that was considered yeah. like a crazy socialist insanity back then. 
Eric, you're the real journalist. Can I put you on the spot? You cannot put me on the spot, but I can look it up on Wikipedia like everybody else does. All right. I'll do that. I'll do that. VAT implementation. Oh, no, but it's not the historical. Okay. Well, we'll look it up and we will. We will let you yes. know once we... So, so that's the biggest uh, news here in Saudi, is the benefits. There were a, a number of uh, uh, appointments for vice governors and uh, so on. Mm. Uh, the, the soldiers, uh, all people on the front in Yemen fighting, have received a two-month salary bonus. Um, uh, other than that, the school, we... People here love the word vacation. Uh, schools were supposed to... Ramadan is coming up in uh, June, late May, uh, for in Ju- uh, early June. And they were supposed to have their finals exams in Ramadan during fasting. So, so of course, came out, said that they pushed all the exams to pre- before Ramadan. So the entire month of Ramadan is a vacation time for students. Nice. Yeah. All right. Um... Okay, I won't ask more about the war uh, or other things. Um, <laughs> I, I think we've had enough of those. Uh, I will say, however, that it is indeed um, the uh, French director of tax, uh, tax authority that implemented VAT on April 10, 1954. Um, oh, yeah. That sounds was, like, yeah. It was that sounds like the proposed, first one. It was first proposed... Uh, it, by a German industrialist in 1918. So it took, you know, over 30 years to actually reach enough uh, uh, mind share to be, to be implemented. So sometimes idea that's, ideas that seem outrageous initially um, make their way into people's minds and are considered reasonable and even make their way into uh, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. So... <laughs> um, yep. All right. And they're still not in the U.S., although they do have sales tax. They have sales tax. It's basically yeah. the same. Well, they just yeah. don't, ha- they don't have it on federal level. That's yeah, all. yeah. And some states don't have it. Yeah. Um, all right. Matthias, please give us good, fun news from Germany. I'm guessing <laughs> I'm going to be disappointed. Well, I'm not sure about the fun one, but as always, there has been a lot going on over here. So we have a radical army officer that has been pretending, pretending to be a Syrian refugee, presumably to instigate a terror attack on his own. Our intelligence service has been caught wait, wait, by what? Europol that went, and Interpol. That went too fast. That went too fast. Uh, uh, I, think, I think that was deliberate. I think that yeah. was deliberate. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's not the story I was. Uh, I chose, okay. but if you want to know about no, 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 it, no, no. it's just ahead. been it's yesterday or uh, the day before yesterday, there is an army officer that uh, has been discovered that he pretended to be a Syrian refugee and has registered as a refugee, even though he can't speak Arabic, but only French, but no one cared, so he must be a refugee. And apparently he's a right-wing fanatic or something who presumably wanted to use this cover as a refugee to instigate a terror attack. Uh, so it would be blamed on uh, refugees. And it's, it's a crazy story. And no one really knows anything yet because it had just been yesterday wow. when he was apprehended. But that's something 
that's going on right now. Okay. Also, uh, we have a, we had a little scandal this week in Israel while our foreign minister was visiting, and of course, we have a lot of problems with Turkey. And by the way, that's something I always wanted to say while being on the show. Um, <laughs> but I decided another story because it's a rather bizarre one, even though it well, is not as. We as we not, all have yeah. problems with Turkey on the show, so <laughs> that's. <laughs> Me, okay, I'm I'm pure and innocent. People love me. Of course, <laughs> that that's but, something. I think that's something that uh, Donald Trump could say. <laughs> Turkey is Trump. What? No. Well, uh, uh, maybe not. All Turkey right, keep going. Keep going. <laughs> okay, let's go. Uh, about two weeks ago, there was a roadside bombing which targeted one of Germany's well-known football teams, Borussia Dortmund. They were in a bus driving to the stadium for the UEFA Champions League quarterfinal against the team from Monaco when three bombs exploded. Holy and uh, the bus took some damage and a police officer as well as one of the players were injured. But luckily, that was the extent of the damage done. Initially, the police suspected Islamic terrorists, as everybody does, everybody does these days behind the attack, because there was a letter found at the scene claiming that the attack was an act of revenge for a military action by Germany against the so-called Islamic State. But the authorities quickly had doubts, because normally ISIS terrorists don't claim responsibility in a letter left at the scene, so they expanded their investigation and found and arrested the suspected bomber last week. As it turns out, the whole thing didn't have anything to do with Islamic terrorism, but was simple greed. The suspect is a 28-year-old German-Russian citizen that bought options to short-sell 15,000 shares of the football club's stock. And his plan was to crash the stock uh, by injuring or even killing several of the players, which would have brought him a lot of money. And it is worth Jeez. mentioning that Borussia Dortmund is the only... A football club in Germany that is traded at the German stock market. So this team is the only team he could have targeted. So um, unfortunately for the attacker, but lucky for the team, the bombs didn't weren't set up correctly. So uh, the bulk of the blast actually missed the bus. And even though there were some injuries, the share prices didn't fall as much as he had hoped. So even if he would have gotten away with it, he wouldn't have made a lot of money. But the police actually caught up with him rather quickly because not only did he buy the large amount of options that uh, he needed, but also was staying in the Dortmund team hotel. And uh, he requested a room with a view of the scene so he could actually trigger the bombs when the bus was driving by. And subsequently, now he has been charged with attempted murder, causing an explosion, aggravated battery, and severe bodily harm. So it's not always Islamic terrorism these days. And uh, No, it's crazy Germans. It's Why did we ever crazy. get into the European <laughs> Union with you guys? What I is wrong know. with this? The incident also hey, hey, some wait, wait, wait. Is this coming from the French who turned cars and burned them in demonstrations and... And take hostages, right. uh, managers of corporations. Yes, okay, fair enough. That's true. All right. Now I understand. We 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 are we are pretty much the same. That explains the EU. All right, fair We're enough. We're more capitalistic than that. We actually do that for money, you know. Yeah, yeah. That, <laughs> at least we do it for crazy ideologies. But yeah. uh, no, actually, the whole incident had some nice stories coming out of it because uh, after the attack, the match was obviously cancelled, and uh, that left a lot of the Monaco fans stranded in Dortmund. And, uh, kind of like we have seen during the recent terrorist attacks in France and other places, some of the fans of Borussia Dortmund actually invited people from Monaco to come into their homes and spend the night with them. So Aww. I guess a lot of new friendships were made that evening, and 
at least something good came out of that. That's so cute. Pretty good. All yeah. right, that's nice. But it's kind of a crazy story. Uh, that's not. It's not that big on a global scale, but it's uh, I guess something interesting. You could, yeah. uh, everybody has been talking about. Well, you're few. just you're just pushing the liberal agenda that uh, terrorism is not just Muslim terrorism, and you're trying to minimize the issues of terrorism. Of course, with that uh, with that story, uh, I see through you, you crazy oh, left wing uh, press. <laughs> Crazy left-wing German, yes, yes that's what exactly. everybody say about Germans when they think of Germany, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fair enough. Um, I think this will be a nice time to uh, end the show. Um, it was an interesting one, a lot more on Korea and French elections. And, and again, I think you guys might get a little bit more um, French elections in the coming week, weeks. Uh, on on this feed so I hope you're ready for that and, and hopefully you will get something out of it we'll see uh, but until then um, can you guys please tell me where we can find you if the listeners want to come and yell at you for the crazy things you're saying on the show um, Eric where are you on the internet yeah no so I podcast every week on China Africa relations and you can find us at China africa-podcast.com that's China africa-podcast.com also we've got about a quarter of a million people following me on LinkedIn uh, where I'm posting kind of content and discussions and infographics every day on China Africa relations and of course on Twitter uh, eolander e o l a n d e r top China Africa news uh, every day And uh, that link will be in the show notes for Twitter so you can find him and uh, bug him. Um, That would be great. I'd love it. <laughs> uh, someone else I'm certain you want to find and bug after this episode is Turkey. Um, where can people find you, good sir? Why, why would anybody want to bug me? Come on. Come on. <laughs> you're giving a bad reputation. Come on. I'm a very Well, nice you're, guy. you're giving yourself your reputation uh, <laughs> already. I don't have to. Don't get me into this. <laughs> All right. So if you want to keep up with me, check me on Twitter. Turkey Albala, T-U-R-K-I-A-L-B-A-L-L-A. I post from time to time, sometimes in Arabic, mostly in English. So come on and see what I'm up to. <laughs> And lastly, uh, Matthias, who's been a, a very quiet and a collected German uh, panelist on the show. Where can people find you, Vincent? As always, if you want to talk to me, you can find me on Twitter. The handle is at Matsukut, which will also be in the show notes. And uh, you can just drop by and say hello and uh, talk to me there. Excellent. And again, the links to the Twitters will be in the show notes. Uh, for me, it's not Patrick on Twitter and Facebook. You can find this show and the notes at uh, frenchspin.com. You can also uh, support the show at Patreon if you think that uh, some of the views we give on the show are interesting. If you think this provides a service you would have a hard time getting otherwise, you can decide to support us financially. And that happens at patreon.com slash the Phileas Club. Uh, you'll find the link in the show notes, of course. It takes a couple of minutes and uh, it's incredibly uh, important for uh, the, the support of the show and for keeping it going i mean let's be honest i'd be doing it anyway but it helps me a lot to um you know have 
the the food I need to eat uh, in during the days when I prepare the show. So uh, a million thanks, of course, to the people who do support it. There's over 300 of you, and I am incredibly thankful to for uh, everything you're doing. And if you want to support us in other ways, you can, of course, go to iTunes uh, or a podcast app and uh, leave a review. For some reason, there were a couple of reviews from um, Nordic countries and specifically from Norway uh, in the past month. So thank you very much to Christopher Blix, um, who left a review entirely in Norwegian. So I'm not going to read it, but the sentiment is very much appreciated. And Toroa, also from Norway, who says one of the best podcasts. This is an important and very good podcast. Patrick listens and talks to both sides of the subject. And then he goes on in Norwegian, I'm guessing, because it has the O's with the weird little bar in them so um <laughs> thank you very much to both of you to everyone who uh goes and uh, leaves a review and a bunch of stars and of course again to the people who support the show financially uh again if this is something that uh, you think is uh, valuable important please consider doing so at patreon.com slash the phidias club Thanks for listening. We'll be back shortly, I hope, with a show focused on the French elections. And even if that doesn't happen, we'll be back in a month for a regular one. Talk to you then. Bye.